welcome to Tidbits of Research. My name's Sparanda Sandu. My guest today is Mandalina Vlaschanu, an NYU Provost postdoctoral fellow working in a social neuroscience lab directed by Professor David Amodio, where she'll be working on biases in AI and how algorithms propagate human biases. Originally from Romania, so interviewing her was particularly exciting for me, she got her PhD from Departments of Psychology and Neuroscience at Princeton University, and she also received a Master's in Cognitive Psychology from Princeton University and a Bachelor's in Psychology and Economics from the University of Rochester. We cover so much today, from concrete tools she can employ as a cognitive scientist to decrease beliefs in false information, to her exploring new research interests after finishing her PhD, to how people incorporate direct evidence to change their beliefs, and whether the source of the information or evidence matters. Spoilers, it sure does. Let's get started. Mandalina, welcome to Tidbits of Research. I'll start with, I guess, maybe some future plans. You'll be joining the NYU Psychology Department this fall as an NYU Provost's postdoctoral fellow. Correct. What will you be working on? I am very excited to join NYU. It's been a long desire of mine to be joining this community. I uh, considered this department even for my PhD work. It turned out that uh, Princeton was a better fit at the time. But now uh, my work has expanded in various ways and I will be now joining uh, David Amodio's lab. And I will be working primarily on looking at biases in AI and how algorithms propagate biases that humans already have and how even though humans may be trying to work on them and decrease them, algorithms are there to remind us that we've already trained them on on them and uh, they'll bring them back. And we're just trying to figure out ways in which um, we can prevent that from happening. You were saying that this is an older interest, but somehow now is the time kind of after your PhD when it kind of got consolidated? This has always been in the back of my mind as, a, as an interest. It's never happened that I've actually done research on the topic directly. There's always been other projects that I was involved with and more excited about at the time. And now I've gotten a lot more time to think about what I really want to do. And it's at the time in your career where you try to, so after you finish your PhD and, and you know, during your PhD, at least in psychology and neuroscience, you, um, you try to find what you are interested in, but that's still in the confines of what your lab is interested in and what your community is supportive of. And now towards the end of that process is when you can understand where you're true interest is and where you can make your mark. And so I think for me, going into this direction is a natural step. In my PhD, I mostly worked on people's collective beliefs and how misinformation shapes our beliefs and our behaviors and what are ways in which we can, uh, we as researchers, as policymakers, as institutes that are trying to convince people this is the true information, this is the false information, please don't believe the false one. Uh, what are our tools to convince people of the correct information? So I think a natural step from, from that more um, factual beliefs space is to now look also into this 
other space of attitudes and how our attitudes towards other people, not towards facts, can be shaped and changed. And this is kind of the transition that I'm making now in moving into my postdoc. You have a master's in cognitive science, and then your PhD is in psychology and neuroscience. That's a lot of <laughs> fields, a lot of things that are intersecting. So what kind of general questions lie at the intersection of these fields for you? Yeah, these fields aren't really separated almost at all. They are just so fluid, especially where I was at Princeton. Everything is just merged together. The departments don't create a clean cut between them. Like People collaborate across these. You don't actually even know what people's official designation is under there. It's just everyone, you know, is in the same place, and that's really important. It's the same building for all of psychology, social psychology, developmental psychology, cognitive psychology, neuroscience. Everything is under one roof, and that creates this fluidity and collaboration. I don't think the ideas themselves have any boundaries. It's more like the, the boundaries are the methods you're using. So you know somebody's a neuroscientist because... They ask the same question, but they, they investigate it with a different tool than you are. You, as a social psychologist, might use a survey to ask people about their beliefs, whereas a neuroscientist might use an fMRI scanner and try to get at them through neuroimaging, whereas a, a developmental psychologist uh, might look at kids using eye tracking so it's the method i would say that that kind of defines your your field but the ideas are all the same that's so cool i really like that separation into fields <laughs> you said that your research was investigating cognitive and social processes that shape individuals and collectives how do individuals differ from collectives in terms of like attitudes and behaviors yeah, that's a fascinating question. That's what's, I think, the most fascinating thing to, to think about. So for the longest time, cognitive science, since its beginnings about, you know, seven, eight decades ago, in, in the, the, modern, the modern cognitive science that we now understand, has been very focused on individuals and on individual minds. How do people process information? How do you transform information into behaviors, into emotions, into cognition. So it's only been recently that people have tried to think about groups in a more than, group being more than the sum of its parts. And people have started to understand that a group, a collective, can have very different dynamics than just the sum of all of the individuals within it. And this is the case for a lot of the processes we've already understood at the level of the individual. So for instance, there is now an understanding that a group has a collective uh, level emotion. For instance, if you um, are in a big concert hall and you're very touched by a song, for instance, and, and some, some people get excited, some people start crying, that emotion... It's, it's different from, from the sum of each individual person's emotions. The reason I'm thinking of this example with the concert hall is because people, for instance, synchronize their clapping in a, in a concert hall at the end when, when everybody claps. People synchronize it in a way that if you put all of that, like five, 10,000 people 
in a room without being able to hear the rest of the people, the rest of the 10,000 people. They wouldn't synchronize their clapping, but they do in the concert hall. And it goes the same with other processes, like emotions, or this one is, I think, the most powerful one, because everyone almost has experienced a stronger emotion when uh, they're in a group of people that are collectively experiencing um, something mm-hmm. that creates emotion. Yeah. Right. So, so that's where this interest came from, um, from these researchers to move beyond the individual and look at what are collective, collective's memories, because they are also different. So, for instance, um, we look at memories of 9-11, and I can ask you your own memory of it, but then I could also ask you, what do you think your country's collective memory is? And you might say that's different than your own or than a group of people individually mm-hmm. and so it's the same with with memory with emotion and we um have started thinking about beliefs in this way also and just trying to conceptualize and um understand how to measure collective level beliefs differently from just the sum of the individual's beliefs in the group on the one hand it seems that many people seem to act in similar situations maybe they have similar behaviors or maybe they do similar things but on the other hand, they also belong to different groups, they belong, they have different identities. So it's really hard to treat all people in even a group that acts in the same way as like, they're all going to do the same thing. How do you balance that? I'm trying to like push forward in terms of like applying this into policy. Right. Yes, that's a great question. I get this question a lot, especially in my work, looking at specific concrete interventions that I test on how you can decrease misinformation, say, in the U.S. In the U.S., there's a big, you know, misinformation epidemic. And it's not specific to the U.S. This is just the context that's most often researched because here, most of the researchers. So this is where where people think to implement or to test their interventions. And so, um, so yes, people ask me, are your interventions universal? Do they apply differently to different people? Could you target people differently and be more effective? And there's a whole field of psychology called personality and individual differences. And that just gets at the differences between people in terms of, you know, you're more extroverted than me, or you can be more open to experiences uh, than me. And people differ across all of these different dimensions. And like you said, identities are different. So you might be a... Uh, liberal and I might be a moderate, for instance. So there are these differences and they matter very much. What I have done in my work is try to come up with universal interventions that work on average across these differences. Of course, there are dimensions on which you have to just check and make sure is there a difference there? For instance, a lot of my interventions, I always check for political ideology differences. And the reason I'm not very concerned with targeting groups is because in most of my work, these interventions, these tools I find to decrease people's belief in false information, they apply pretty broadly and there's not really a lot of differences by people's ideology or political affiliation or these kinds of dimensions. So in my work, I'm less concerned about that. A lot of researchers are 
only focusing on on those differences and you know they're trying to to come up with ways to target specific groups that's not my approach i think uh, more universal tools are probably better just in terms of how you can deploy them and you can reach people that way and because of my observation in all of the years i've studied the human mind and this is my a little bit of my personal speculation but um people are very similar you know like especially if you think of cognition you know the way you will respond to a stimulus is very similar to the way I'll respond to a stimulus at that very primal level and all of these differences are are much more superficial and the kinds of to- the kinds of interventions that we're aiming to investigate get at that much more implicit level it's not very up here explicit where differences between people would matter more. So let's go maybe into a little more detail. What are some of these universal interventions or tools that you've been finding? Yes, it's um, there's a lot of them. As cognitive scientists, we just look at the toolbox that we have and we're just trying to see which ones work. The couple that I find and I talk about them in my dissertation, which... My defense is on YouTube if you're <laughs> if anyone would like to watch it. So for instance, one method uh, that we find that can decrease belief in false information is to decrease the memory accessibility of that piece of information. So for instance, one cognitive process that um, researchers have discovered in the past couple couple years is that things that we engage things that we bring to the top of our I like to use the backpack metaphor imagine you have a backpack and that's your memory and memory is not perfect memory can be changed can be distorted you have different memories at different time points right and that backpack of memories is always changing it always shuffles and if you think there the backpack has a top and a middle and a bottom and what's at the top you can bring things to the top and that's what's going to be on your mind and easily accessible. And so if you have a conversation about uh let's say vaccines and by virtue of the conversation or by virtue of you reading about it or any kind of conscious awareness you bring it to the top of your backpack and then everything else gets pushed a little bit by this one concept that you brought to the top. So this idea that that our memory is so fluid then you can bring stuff up and push things down based on your own volition. Playing with this or or trying to trying to um see whether bringing things up changes their their believability versus uh pushing things down also changes their believability. So that's what we find. We find that if people who even know the fact that Let's take um the fact that uh vaccines don't cause autism, right? That's a fact, but if you hear or read that vaccines cause autism and even if you know they don't, but if you read the fact that they do multiple times by virtue of repetition, you will consolidate that idea and bring it to the top of your memory and then you're more likely to believe it. And this is what we find. On average, things that are especially when it has a, a direction like this one. And so what we try to do is trying to see does pushing a piece of information down in your memory backpack. Does that work to, to decrease its believability and that's what we find. 
Uh, so how do you push something down? Well, you, first of all, don't bring it up. You bring up something else, but that, that something else has to be related. So that's a memory process called retrieval and just forgetting. So we forget things that we don't retrieve, that we don't think about, talk about. So an example of that would be, you talk so much to me today about beliefs and vaccines and global warming and all of the concepts that you talked about in your last podcast, because that's the related context for you, will go down in your memory backpack. So that's one example. We, we also have done interventions with emotions. So we find that um, if a piece of information is associated with an arousing emotion, it's more likely to be believed. Does this arousing emotion have to be positive or not necessarily? We only study it in the context of negative emotional arousal because negative arousal is, is stronger. I haven't seen data showing what would happen with positive. And, and when I present this project, people ask me if it would work with positive. And I, I do speculate that it, it would. It's just weaker. So we went for the strongest manipulation we could think of in that realm. Then we are, we are also looking at direct evidence. So we try and present people with evidence and see whether they incorporate it and change their beliefs. And then we manipulate who gives them the evidence, so the source of information. So we have a study in which we look at who is better at increasing people's knowledge about vaccines. And we test a large array of, of sources. For instance, we test politicians or you know, health experts such as the CDC or Dr. Fauci. We also test whether individual people who we randomly selected to be the source, whether they're just as impactful, whether large groups of people, so say a group of, you know, 100 people all together kind of agreeing on this one fact and delivering it. Yeah. And so there we find that actually it's only the very large group of people that are good source to increase knowledge at least about vaccines and people don't really incorporate evidence from other sources as much. I want to just piggyback a little bit on your backpack analogy. I really like that. Are there also relations with the lower layers interchanging or like what happens with stuff that's not exactly, you know, immediately retrievable? Yeah, so in memory research, that question is very much currently on, on the you know, top of the list for a lot of cognitive scientists and neuroscientists. What happens with all those layers? And there's research right now coming from people such as Ken Norman at Princeton and others showing that it's kind of like this U-shaped curve of memory in which memories that are very, very much at the bottom, very inaccessible, Things that you, you know, it would take you, they're there, but it would take you a really long time and a lot of triggers to pull them out. Those kinds of super down, depressed memories are really hard to bring up and really hard to change or to push further down or to forget to wipe them out of there. And then there's these memories at the very top of your mind, of your backpack, that are just so strong that they're also very inflexible. And what they find is that the most flexible ones are the middle ones. Interesting. And this is where the U-shaped curve comes in. And they they find this um, not just with behavioral experiments, but in um, in neuroimaging. 
and they show, you know, they have a, a neural signature of particular memories. And then they show that they can suppress memories and they can see the strength of it. And they can see that they only are able to, for instance, suppress those in the moderate range. So yes, there's different layers and they act, they behave differently. What are some of the tools that you've been using to ask and answer these questions? Uh, yeah, I try to get my hands dirty in, <laughs> in as many tools as I could in my PhD, just because I really wanted to take advantage of Princeton's equipment and opportunities and openness to for any graduate student to, to be able to freely use all of the devices easily. So I do, I've done a little bit of neuroimaging. I've also done uh, social network analysis, which is, I think, I would say would be the meat of my, of my work, is when I bring a group of people into the lab, say 12 people, but it could be larger, 20 people. And I test an intervention on this group and then allow them to have conversations, computer-mediated conversations with each other. But these conversations happen in a specific order that I program in advance, such that I know who talks to who and who forms a clique, who, what, what's the social network I, I created in advance. And then I test how the interventions that, I, that I've done at the beginning, how did they shape, how did they change as a function of what people do with it in their conversations and as a function of the network structure. So whether a network is very clicky and becomes very clustered, we know information travels differently through that versus a network that's more interconnected and, and so on. So, so that would be, I'd say, social network analysis has been a tool that I really enjoyed using and I think it's very revealing. And then finally, of course, behavioral experiments which is also probably most of what I do. What is a behavioral experiment? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, a behavioral experiment, um, it can actually happen in the lab, in the laboratory, or online. So, so an example of a behavioral experiment is, for instance, you invite people into the lab. It's mostly undergraduates at the university where you're at because they're required to, well, not required to participate in research, but encouraged to participate in research um, and they get compensated for, for participating. So, so that would be a behavioral experiment is when you test the, a behavioral intervention. It's not, you're not scanning them. It's not a neural experiment. You're not taking physiology measure. It's not, for instance, some, some experiments in psychology will take all of these physiology measures like saliva to measure how stressed you are because of the cortisol in your saliva or you could take uh, blood pressure to see whether the person's blood pressure rises as a you know as an outcome of whatever your manipulation is for instance an arousing image a behavioral experiment in contrast is just what the person says to you it's a self-reported measure you know you ask them how uh, emotional do you feel on a scale from one to 10? And they just say eight. And that's the behavioral measure. Which I'm sure has like interesting results when you try to like intersect the measures. Yes. And a lot of people intersect the measures because they try to validate them. They try to see whether people's self-report is accurate, whether it correlates with their physiology, with their neural activity, you know, 
everything you're you're able to measure you you know eye tracking and so on so people are trying to find creative ways of measuring and validating their measures um, just to make sure they're getting at the construct that they're interested in but also at a certain stage right if i say i am afraid to a level of eight then that is what will guide my decision whether or not i'm actually afraid to a level that someone else would call an eight differences between people in how they rate these are concerning to psychologists, but people um, have actually done research in, in exactly asking this question, like how do people interpret a scale differently? And it's funny that even though you will interpret the scale differently from me, your own interpretation of the scale does predict your own behavior. And so if you, you can also standardize uh, between people. So if you only use the middle of the scale, and you not, never go above an 8, then an 8 will be the maximum for you. So when you, you standardize that, then your 8 will be exactly as my 10, because it's just we standardize within person. You mentioned somewhere I've been reading about the interests, the research interests, and you say that you're interested in applying this research to social welfare. How should we define social welfare? Social welfare for me is anything that helps a, real, a problem in the real world that affects people or beings or the planet or you know uh, it's broad it's um there's this distinction in my field and i bet it's it's true in math or you know it's applied for applied science versus basic science and i highly respect basic science which is science for the sake of science for the sake of knowledge for the sake of advancement of human understanding of the field and then down the line from there, maybe someone will find an application and will use the basic science to apply it somehow. And then on that spectrum, there's the super applied science where you test the specific drug for the specific disease. You know, it's it's not for the sake of you understanding the chemistry of the substance that decreases blood pressure. It's actually because you want to decrease blood pressure in that person. So on this spectrum of, of basic to applied, I would say I'm, I have been in the middle for potentially my whole career, and now I'm just trying to make my way towards applied, which is where I think I can make uh, more of an impact and where I would feel just more uh, motivated. And, and just to give you a couple examples, concretely, I am, I think, most motivated by ways to prevent global warming. Global warming, I think, is, is one of my main drivers because I definitely feel that there's a lot of people working on this and trying to find ways to prevent it, right? You're trying to find cleaner energy or more efficient batteries. But I think there's a lot of need for psychologists working on this issue to try to, once a product is available, convince people to get on board and think this is a crucial aspect that we should all care about. Or even convince people who think it's a scam that it's not. And then the other one uh, would be infectious disease and how to motivate people to get vaccinated and not be so afraid of vaccines uh, because of all the misinformation. Yeah, incredibly, again, relevant today. Yes, my, my study is looking at encouraging people to get vaccines uh, started way before COVID. And then when, when COVID hit, it's funny, it's actually just been easier to get funding to do that kind of work. But uh, the interest is definitely there. So looking at your research and trust as kind of a timeline, 
and how your research interests solidified in time. Can you point to a certain moment in time where you were like, this is cool, I want to stay in this for a long time? I think I have that quite often, maybe not more than once at least. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I was in undergraduate, I was trying to get more involved in research. And of course, you don't choose... I mean, not everyone has the luxury to choose the lab that they're going to be able to work in. And I happened to be able to get a position in a lab uh, that was doing this more social psychology type work. And that was very interesting to me. But I think that's when I knew uh, that I actually am more interested in, in doing cognitive psychology. So there, people were very interested, like you said in the beginning, about... They're interested in these differences between people and like how their personalities differ. How are you more, you know, introverted than me, and how does that matter for how biased you are against, you know, this group of people? And that's interesting. But I, that's when I knew I want to study cognition and I want to look at the universal processes that we all share and understand those better. So that's I think that's why I applied to to this cognitive program at Princeton, where when I got there, I found out that everything is so fluid that it didn't matter, and then you can choose what you can do and what you're interested in, and it doesn't matter what you call it, you know, psychology, cognitive science, it's, it's very, very much similar ideas. And then now, I think very recently, when I finished my PhD and I was just trying to understand where my future interests lie, looking at this this bridge between beliefs and attitudes and moving more towards how algorithms propagate our attitudes or biases. Biases are, are just attitudes, right, that are perhaps not uh, very accurate. And yes, I think these, those are the two, I think, main times when I, when I realized um, what I want to do next and stick, stick with for a while. Were there other potential career opportunities you were considering in this moment where you're like, what do I want to do now? Yeah, so um, last year when I was wrapping up my dissertation, I went on the job market and I applied to a bunch of academic jobs. I applied for, you know, professor jobs, assistant professor jobs, just like as you do. I applied for postdocs. I applied um, to work as a researcher in, in some industry labs because there's you know, for example, Google has basic, a basic research lab or, or Microsoft. Uh, and so I, I applied there too. So I, I considered multiple paths and I was just open as long as I could do the kind of research I'm interested in. I ended up, I ended up uh, turning down an offer for an assistant professor job in uh, Vienna just because at the time I didn't feel like I could make the physical move since I I just had a baby so oh my um, goodness congratulations thank you very much I, it, it felt like the decision was was made a lot also to to just thinking about her future and where where I would want her to grow up and so I took this this position at NYU as a postdoc that I'm very excited about and now I'm, I'm on the job market again this summer again applying to academic jobs assistant professor jobs so yes, this is my trajectory. I am hoping to be able to stay in academia. As you, I'm sure, know, academia is a very competitive industry and there's uh, not that many positions. 
at least last year there weren't because of, I think, also COVID. Like hiring freezes. Yeah, I'm more hopeful for this year. You have uh, a recent paper, Political and Non-Political Belief Change Elicits Behavioral Change. Tell us a little bit about kind of the, the in, in broad terms what the paper um, is saying and maybe how it aligns with the literature. Yeah, I love that paper. It's a collaboration with Javen Babel, too, who's at NYU and whom uh, I applied to work uh, also as a postdoc with. And I will be definitely collaborating with for the period I'm at NYU with Dave. But um, yes, that paper, so my whole dissertation is about how you can change people's beliefs and try to, you know, try to increase their knowledge, try to get them to believe the correct information. And I always get this question at the end of my talks, um, you know, does it really matter that you change someone's belief if they don't act any differently? So maybe now you won't think that vaccines are dangerous, but you still won't get it because, not because you don't believe it's dangerous, but because um, you just feel like you shouldn't, you know, it's like it touches on something else, not on your beliefs. It touches on your emotions. So beliefs are, in other words, just orthogonal to your behavior it's not what we should be trying to think about when we try to nudge people to make correct choices and that's fair luckily a lot of other people before me have tried to understand whether people's beliefs do translate into behaviors and doing that literature review and trying to to find evidence for it, because I was convinced that there is evidence for it. <laughs> Otherwise, why would I study beliefs right. to begin with? There's a lot of theorizing about it. There's a lot of correlational studies about it. Um, there's very, very little experimental, empirical experimental evidence. From experimental evidence is the kind of evidence that you can use to make causal claims to say, this belief will cause this behavior. But if you look at a correlational study, which is what most of the literature had to offer, you can look only at co-occurrences. For instance, your belief that you are susceptible to tuberculosis and your behavior of getting the tuberculosis shot, those can co-occur, they will correlate, but one didn't cause the other. Something else could have caused both of them. So this was most of the evidence in the literature. And I just wanted to test it experimentally to see whether causally that relationship is there. So what we did in the study with, was we changed people's beliefs through evidence exposure. This is a very basic mechanism that you, you, know, you offer a piece of information, people will rationally update their belief. But then we measured whether that caused behavioral change. And when the way we measured behavior change was through donations so we actually gave people, you know, we said, our, our lab will give you a sum of money. You can choose where to donate. You can keep it or you can donate it. And then you can donate it to one of these campaigns. And each campaign was uh, directly connected to one of the beliefs. So if you truly believe that guns are dangerous, then the thought, at least the hypothesis, was that we would be more likely to donate to a campaign that would vouch for, for, for decreasing uh, gun rights, for instance. So, Are we talking political campaign here? Um, the, that connection was 
in terms of raising awareness, in terms of advertisements, in terms of also, yeah, politically just kind of um, lobbying and, and things like that. So the more a campaign is funded, told participants, the more attraction it will have in advertising and, and, and you know, it's more likely to be implemented in, in that way if it's, if it's funded. So no different than, you know, signatures for campaigns are trying to lobby in favor or against certain laws. So so here we use these examples just to try and get at whether people's people what they say they believe in, whether that will translate into exactly what they will donate to. So this this specific behavior that we measure. So that's what we found. We found this causal connection and we replicated it. We found it in three different experiments. We did it with um, all kinds of beliefs in corresponding um, campaigns, so not just political, but also neutral uh, on this ideological spectrum. So we tried it with the healthcare domain where people's beliefs are are less political. So what are the kinds of recommendations? The recommendation would be that don't take for granted that things like campaigns, ads, whatever's written on the bus that you see every day, like that matters in terms of what people will believe and what people will further along do. So we know with Brexit, how that misinformation campaign worked was very much um, based on science. So they would would write these facts that were wrong. So they were uh, deliberately trying to, to disinform the population. And they write them in places where people would be exposed to them repeatedly. And that's what uh, that's why that's what drove British citizens to vote for in favor of Brexit. That happens a lot. That happened with the 2016 election on Facebook in in the U.S. So Facebook had all these ads. These were more sophisticated. They, they actually targeted people based on their profiles. So so yes, I guess the recommendation would be that now we know how powerful these kinds of interventions are and these kinds of repeated exposures to information of any kind and if it's false then then we will behave in corresponding ways absolutely fascinating Matalina Blasciano thank you so much this has been so much fun (laughs) it has been and thank you for thinking of me and for inviting me on your fabulous podcast and for your time and effort and interest and and just um i'm gonna stay tuned to further episodes oh gosh thank you (laughs) i so enjoyed my chat with madalina also since so many of these topics are close to my interests too i was biased as it were It was interesting to hear about her interest in applying all of this research to real-life situations and incredibly important problems that we're dealing with today, from vaccinations to climate change. Next time you see an ad that seems ridiculous on a bus, don't take for granted that it won't affect anyone. So if anything, I think this chat inspired me to be a little more vigilant and maybe more caring for my community and more involved. And for folks who want to dive a little more into psychology research, and for those who like podcasts, Madalina recommends The Happiness Lab with Dr. Lori Santos. Given the rough year we've had, we can all use some investment into our health and well-being. Our music is Float and Fly by Golgartelli. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.